Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, July 8th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 1 to 26. The Lord continues his proclamation of good news to the people of Israel in Jeremiah's book of comfort. The Lord promises that he will turn the mourning he had brought upon his people into sounds of gladness and joy. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe serves at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, glad to be back with you again today. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. We're in Jeremiah chapter 31 today. What do we need to know about the prophet, his ministry, the section of the book as we prepare to look at these verses for today? Well, yeah, um, as you, you know, have been studying this book, and if you've been following along, you know that, you know, up uh, early in the book, there's all sorts of talk of judgment and the problems that are going on, and, and particularly right then that uh, Babylon is is coming. And then we kind of get this little uh, oasis in the middle of the book, these couple chapters here, uh, beginning in Jeremiah 30, where we get this great news that God indeed is not done with his people. I mean, if there's any place in the Old Testament where it looks like the story should be over, right? It would be, I mean, first with the deportation of the people from the Northern Kingdom, uh, then kind of that similar activity of the exile uh, of the Southern Kingdom. It looks like that should be it, right? God (laughs) tried and it didn't work out and he should move on. And yet this section to me, more than anything else, is saying, I I don't move on. I'm, I'm faithful to my promises uh, even when you're faithless. And so, uh, you know, chapter 30 uh, begins that, and then now chapter 31 continues uh, all of this good news. Uh, you know, Jeremiah says, you know, he's going to tear down and he's going to, you know, build up and plant. And this is more of the building up and planting uh, type section here. Uh, yesterday, we we talked a little bit about this in terms of the audience that Jeremiah is writing to. You know, he was called a prophet to the nations at the beginning of the book in his call. And we've heard him address primarily Judah in the opening chapters. But who's he talking to in this section, Pastor Hoppy? Well, in this section, I mean, especially in verse one, we get this immediate talk that he is writing to all the clans of Israel or all the tribes of Israel, which seems, I mean, in one way at this point in history, sort of odd. Uh, You know, it's at least striking in the sense that, uh, you know, by this point, you might kind of think that the northern tribes are forgotten. uh, And now the story is just about Judah, uh, and yet not for God, right? He says that he is going to be the God of all the clans of Israel, and uh, particularly as we go through, right, for the the remnant, uh, both from ultimately the northern and southern kingdom, or we can just say, as he does, all Israel, right? That's who he is going uh, to save uh, by bringing a savior. 
Yeah, I think that's that's an important thing to see in this section that he is talking to all Israel. And we were chatting a little bit about this beforehand. Sometimes we we refer to the northern kingdom as the lost tribes of Israel because historically speaking, there is not a return of that nation in the same sense there there is for Judah after Cyrus, the Persian king, lets them come back. But theologically, in a text like this, we do see that the Lord preserves a remnant from his entire people, from all the tribes of, of Israel. That, that's probably just worth pointing out, if nothing else. Yeah, I, I think it is, you know, important to see. And, and just, again, you know, it would kind of be odd because obviously the promises are made to all the tribes of Israel, right? Uh, initially. And again, we can't, you know, go back over the entire history and the divided kingdom and all of that. But the original promises are made to all. And since we know that God is faithful to his word, it, it in one way, uh, you know, graciously, it makes sense that he is still concerned about the northern kingdom, even though they are long uh, out of the land uh, by this point. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a look at the text that we've got today. We're starting here in Jeremiah 31, verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor, together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by the brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. That was through verse 14. We'll pause there, Pastor Hoppy. So taking us back to the beginning of this chapter, at that time, the Lord says, I'm going to be the God of all the people of Israel. And we get an echo here of covenant language. He says, I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. That's Exodus language. And then in into verse two, it sounds like we've got more Exodus language, but maybe also applicable to the situation of the exile. What, what's going on in these first couple of verses, Pastor Hoppy? 
Yeah, there are a couple places in the text we're studying today where, you know, uh, exactly what it's referencing is a little bit difficult to know. Now, nothing, of course, that would bring us, you know, overall doubt about what Jeremiah is saying in general, but just kind of what are the specific things he's referring to uh, are can be a little hard to determine. Uh, but here, yeah, we get this idea, right? And again, when I read it originally, too, I, I saw Exodus language here, right? Uh, they survive and then God gives them grace in the wilderness and then ultimately right brings them to rest in the promised land the only kind of odd thing about that is the talk of the sword which we don't really biblically have a lot of talk about the sword being used in egypt that's not to say right it wasn't but that's you know more is the talk is bondage right is slavery um rather than you know swords uh killing uh they're they're more enslaved than they are destroyed in that way um so that's the only thing there it, it, the other possible would simply be that this is sort of another prophetic word that actually is speaking about uh, exile, right? That the people that are returning from that exile, who, again, if we go to both the north and the south, Assyria and Babylon, uh, certainly would not be shy with the use of the sword. Uh, and if so, uh, maybe this is a reference to bringing them back, uh, which is what this whole chapter is about. Uh, there, the only problem is, what do you do with the wilderness, right? And a lot of people have just said, well, it's, you know, it's kind of, again, a metaphorical use that anytime God is sort of bringing his people from slavery to freedom, uh, they go through a wilderness, right? Uh, whether that's, you know, literally a wilderness they're walking through, it still is a wilderness time because that's what happens to God's people between slavery and freedom. Yeah, I think, I wonder if both things may be in mind here, that Jeremiah does want to call the people's mind to what the Lord did for them in the Exodus originally, but also then use that as a way to proclaim to them what the Lord will do for them in the return from exile. In, in, back in chapter 16 of Jeremiah, the prophet talked about how there will come a day when people won't be citing the Exodus as the main salvation event, but they will be citing the return from exile as the main salvation event. And I wonder if, if this text is related in that way, that that Jeremiah is is inviting the people to remember what the Lord did for them when he brought them out of Egypt and now think of what he's going to do for them in the return from exile as an even greater salvation to, to anticipate and to look forward to. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I like that a lot. And I think that that makes most sense of putting the two together is that, yeah, Exodus is sort of the imagery, but it's applied to what God is about to do. And in a way, again, where you, like you said, where uh, it eventually becomes overshadowed, right? The uh, the second covenant is greater uh, than the first, right? And so it, it gets overshadowed. Yeah. I mean, Isaiah uses this type of language too, I think, in, in his chapters of comfort in chapters 40 through 55, where he, well, I suppose there's a few other places outside of that too, where he pictures the return from exile as this, you know, going through the desert and, and this kind of same language that that return from exile being compared to the, the exodus from Egypt. Now, in verse three, you get this, this wonderful a line from the Lord of, of why he's doing this. And it has nothing to do with who his people are, but rather everything to do with who he is for them. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in in verse four here, yeah, it just you know it talks about. I mean, this is following on verse three, where right, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So again, like you said, the whole emphasis is on, uh, you know, God's great enduring love uh, that is going to bring this all about, and the result of that then, right, is that He is going. To, and this is an overall theme in this chapter, to be sure, right? Is this turning of mourning or weeping in to rejoicing and dancing. Um, earlier in the book, in Jeremiah 14, God uh, calling Israel there, also his his virgin daughter, says that he he weeps over her because she's so wounded. Uh, and, and so you get this you know vivid picture of a father mourning, weeping over his wounded daughter who is not whole, and now instead, right, because of God's activity, is made whole, so whole that she's up dancing and spinning around, right, rejoicing in the Lord. Its goodness. The the transformation of the sounds, I think, is is quite uh, is something that we should try to picture or hear in our own minds. In this in this case, you know, the adorning yourself with the tambourines and going forth in the dance of merrymakers. There's been other language previously in Jeremiah that talked about the Lord silencing such sounds, silencing the the sounds of of joy that would have to do with say for weddings and other great joyful events. And and here, as you as you said, we've got that theme of this reversal that the Lord's giving. And I mean, just you know, to try to put this in at least in some perspective for us today, perhaps the the whole experience that we've gone through with the pandemic of when you know think of all the the emptiness that was there when we were at the height of social distancing and and all those sounds that we missed of a of a room full of people. I mean, even just to, just in church, I mean, there's other examples, but even just in church of of having you know smaller crowds of people, and then as as we've begun to come out of that larger groups of people, those sounds returning, just those sounds, the joy, I think helps us to, and this even greater of those, that returning of the sounds of joy is, is really present here in this text. No, oh, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it is a good uh, kind of analogy from our day because uh, yeah, things, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like putting away the hallelujahs, uh, you know, yeah. different traditions, you know, with churches of, of how you go about that or everything. But you put away the hallelujahs so that when you hear them again on Easter morning, during Lent, I should say, so then when you hear them again on Easter morning, it's not just that it's hallelujah, but it's that the hallelujahs have been missing, right? And, and so yeah. it's this kind of double joy. It's a great word, and we haven't heard it in so long. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic what the fantastic image of you know the at least here at Grace with the way we we use we'll we'll have on Transfiguration Sunday we'll use Divine Service setting one with this is the feast and all the alleluias and then it goes away during the season of Lent until it bursts forth on on Easter morning that's the that, yeah. that's the picture here that's a great great image Pastor Hoppy in in verse five we have the the mention of planting vineyards as part of this restoration what does that picture add to what Jeremiah is giving. Well, one of the, I think, main themes of this is this idea, right, where he says you're going to kind of plant them and you're going to enjoy the fruit. And this is when you get into the kind of specifics of the law that God had given. We're actually told that for a vineyard, right, to sort of, once you've planted it, uh, without getting into all the details, it's basically the fifth year is the year when people can kind of sort of just use the vineyard in sort of the common way, right? Uh, They're supposed to 
let it for a couple of years just kind of grow. Uh, and then they give, you know, the first fruits to the Lord. And there's kind of all these different steps. But the fifth year is the one where finally you could say, ha, that vineyard's ours, right? <laughs> and we're going to just eat from it as normal. And so to say that you're going to plant and you're going to eat of the vineyard is really a statement about stability, right? That this is not just going to be, you're going to come back and then it's going to be, you know, over as quick as it started. Um, we see this, I think, throughout the prophets, right? This this is often an image to kind of either give a picture of instability or stability. This idea of, are you going to get to eat what you plant, right? And if if trouble is coming, the picture is always, no, you're not. You're going to plant something and other people are going to benefit from it, right? But then the the reversal here and other places throughout the prophets, right, where there's, you know, even at other times, it's other people have planted stuff and you're going to get to eat it. Or here, you're going to get to do both, plant and eat those uh, of that uh, fruit of the vineyard. So yeah, a picture of of more lasting peace, not something just temporary, but something that you'll get to enjoy for a time is is in this picture of planting the vineyards and eating the fruit. I think there's a there's a contrast too in in terms of the geography here. Earlier in chapter 29, when Jeremiah writes the letter to the exiles, he tells them that they're going to settle down in Babylon and plant gardens there. Here they're going to be planting not in Babylon, but back in their home. And even even more so than that, they're planting on the mountains of Samaria. We were talking earlier about which which kingdom or both kingdoms. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. So this is a, I mean, the, the picture here of planting vineyards, enjoying their fruit, even in Samaria. And then I think it continues into the next verse where it talks about the hill country of Ephraim. This is a this is a very again a very joyful picture of of the fullness of the restoration that the Lord's promising to his exiled people. Yeah, I, I agree again. And I mean the again, it's sort of striking that we are still even talking about Samaria and Ephraim, right? I mean, uh that those are references here of God's salvation um is quite striking and again just shows the long suffering nature of our God and the the faithfulness that he has to his promises. Into verse 6 of chapter 31, we have another mention of the northern country. Here's the hill country of Ephraim, but they're going to go now to Zion. That's a, a pretty significant statement from the prophet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is another one of these great reversals that we're seeing in this chapter in the sense that uh, if you remember again back to the the history of the divided kingdom, right away you have Jeroboam. Uh, and one of the things he does, right, is of course set up these high places in the north uh, in Dan and Bethel in order that uh, his people will not go down uh, regularly to the feasts in Jerusalem. Um, and this is a stain on the people of God of the northern kingdom from, from Jeroboam's day all the way to the deportation by Assyria. Um, this gets brought up time and time again, these high places and what a, you know, a stench they are to God essentially because they directly go against his word to gather in Jerusalem to feast. And so now, even though, right, these words are being spoken in the northern kingdom, the call is to go to Jerusalem, 
right? And it's time to feast in Jerusalem. And yes, again, all the tribes are invited. Uh, you know, we get some of this at the end of the period of the kings where you get, I believe it's Hezekiah that invites, uh, you know, both uh, kingdoms uh, to come down and feast. And you get a little bit of that near the end of the Northern Kingdom. But throughout, it, it's this is a big problem that the Northern Kingdom is not going to Zion. And now here they are. Why? Because God is preparing a great feast for his people, a feast of salvation. As you're talking there, Pastor Hoppy, and just reflecting on, on these verses, that they're even in the northern kingdom, they are going to be called to go to to worship in the place where God would have his people worship. I was reminded of the conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4. And they they talk about this a little bit while they're there. You know, where is the place to worship? And the, the woman says, well, you, you Jews say we have to go to Jerusalem. We want to worship here. And Jesus, of course, you know, says the Father is desiring worship worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, which I, I think ultimately is is saying you, you need to worship me is what Jesus is saying. And I, I mean, right. I don't know. I, I'm seeing a little bit of a connection here in Jeremiah 31 to that event in John chapter 4. Yeah, I think so right here. And this is where, you know, all of these references, uh, when we talk about the return from exile, we don't want to lose that there is, I mean, a geographical return that is going to happen. And yet, some of these geographical places are symbolic as well, right? That So yes to Jerusalem, right? I mean, that is where, you know, outside the city gate is where our Lord will will die and rise. And, and yet, right, Jerusalem doesn't mean then just hang around the city from that point on now, right? The, the That which has happened in Jerusalem now sets forth where uh, we are to worship. Yeah, we're to, to, we're to, we're to worship Christ. Now, we can almost say we're to worship at Christ, right? He's the location uh, where we are to worship now uh, in this new covenant. But certainly, I think you're right that, um, you know, even in that conversation, Jesus kind of uh, more or less says, well, the Jews have this right as far as in Jerusalem, right? But then he says, but that's not really what I want to talk about, right? I really <laughs> want to talk about what we're going to do soon rather than, you know, directing you now to this temple that soon is going to be knocked over stone from stone, right? I want to talk about, you know, forget that debate and let's just talk about where you can worship now in spirit and in truth. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and where, like, and ultimately where the conversation goes is that he identifies himself to her as the the promised Christ, which I think is is the, the point of, of that whole conversation. Yep. And I think, again, I think it relates here as, again, not that Jerusalem is unimportant. It was. And the fact, as you mentioned, the fact that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, didn't allow his people to go worship in Jerusalem is the stain that, that covers the Northern Kingdom. So it's not to say that Jerusalem is unimportant, but it is to say that Jerusalem as, as a place was pointing forward to the person, Jesus Christ. And, and as you said, we go to worship at Christ or, or wherever he is, that's where we go to worship, wherever he makes himself present in word and sacrament, that's where we worship. And, and in that way, these, these words from Jeremiah, you know, point beyond just the fifth, sixth century BC and, and point to our lives as Christians still. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, absolutely. I'm in agreement with you. And, you know, it's just, again, yeah, it's, it's wondrous to think again how God has kind of worked all this out through history. And then, you know, obviously centrally in the person of Jesus, but then that, you know, all this language, all this imagery still has something to say to us today. And of course, now we would say, right, the great shame would be if we were not allowed or did not allow ourselves 
uh, to go and worship Jesus where mm-hmm. he is. As the the text continues into verses seven and following, we get more of this singing and shouting proclamation. Uh, a picture of the people who are who are coming back. You know, the, he says among them the blind, the lame, the pregnant, the most vulnerable, the the those who would would be the easiest to attack. Even they are going to to be able to come back. Uh, there there will be weeping, but the Lord's going to lead them. It's again, it's just a beautiful picture of what the Lord is is going to do for his people in this return from exile. Yeah. And we'll kind of come back to this. So we've got a phrase here coming up after a little bit that's really hard to kind of exactly figure out what it's saying. But even as we're reading this again today, you know, here you get kind of, like you said, the the weakness of Israel uh, returning, right? And that, you know, obviously this is by God's strength. Um, and because of that, right, because it's not based on their own ability, uh, but on God's ability and his power, right? That's where all this singing comes from. And like you said, it's a, it's a loud chapter (laughs) in one way, right? It's, uh, there's a lot of singing and tambourines and, you know, uh, it's, you know, I, I I was talking to someone at our congregations the other day and we were talking about kind of reverence and worship. And I, I, you know, kind of made the cautionary note that, you know, but we don't want to too quickly just associate, uh, specific things with reverence and other things with irreverent, right? That we, we've got to be a little bit careful there. Cause I said, you know, when you hear about the temple or even here, you know, we, we might be a little bit uncomfortable ourselves in some of these settings, right? Uh, when God's people are rejoicing, they're not holding back, right? Uh, it, because it's genuine, right? It's, it's a genuine rejoicing. And so they, uh, you know, take everything that they've got to make merriment uh, and, and show their rejoicing. Right. I think we, we don't want to separate Christian reverence, which is certainly has its place. We don't want to separate that from Christian joy. Those those two things need to go hand in hand. And we, we see how often they do in the scriptures. Yep. And, and one of those places, I think, is this picture at the end of verse nine, where the Lord says he's a father to Israel, to Ephraim, his firstborn. That's such a, a picture that that's filled with joy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, to me, you know, the first thing that pops to mind is, you know, the parable of the prodigal son, right? I mean, um, except, you know, maybe even the parable gets, uh, you know, the picture here is even a, a little bit greater in the sense that, um, you know, here the heavenly father goes and, and seeks out the prodigal son and kind of carries him back uh, to the home, if you want to kind of take the image. Um, but yeah, this this just overall picture here of God as the father. And again, therefore, he doesn't give up on his children, right? This is something that, um, you know, modern parents can understand that even when a child has really gone wayward, there is still this constant desire that hopefully one day, right, all of this can be reconciled. Now, in human parenting, it's not always possible, right? (laughs) But God, with his unlimited power and his steadfastness, uh, he brings it about. And so he, you know, gets his uh, people back, his son back here uh, into his home. Yeah, what a what a picture of joy from our Heavenly Father. We're going to keep looking at that joy here in Jeremiah chapter 31. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're going to take a short break from talking to Pastor Hoppy here, looking at Jeremiah 31 this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Mm-hmm. 
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, July 8th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 1 to 26 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. He serves at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppy, prior to the break, we left off with verse 9. We have the image there of the Lord as father to his son, Israel, Ephraim. In verse 10 and 11, we see a little bit of a switch in imagery, though it is related. There, we've got the very familiar comforting image of the Lord as shepherd to his flock, his people, Israel. Yeah, and you get this, you know, uh, this image we often see whenever the shepherd image is used, right? There's there's often this idea, of course, that the shepherd, not only is it just that he has his sheep in his fold and he's taking care of them, sometimes that's the image, but the other image that's common in the scriptures is that the, the sheep are scattered and he's got to go get them, right? Think of even, you know, leaving the 99 to get the one uh, and then bringing them back into the fold where then he will take care of them. Uh, and here, you know, yeah, that's exactly what he does. He he brings back his people. He keeps them as a shepherd. Um, and, you know, we get this idea too that uh, says, you know, that he has redeemed them from strand, hands too strong uh, for them, for the people of Israel, right? That they can't free themselves. Talk about a good, you know, biblical theme here again. Yeah. Uh, they can't do anything about their own uh, deportation and exile, but God can. Um, and, you know, God makes that which was impossible possible again, which is what he always does when he saves. Yeah. And, and from that, then this this picture of, of rejoicing really comes to a, a bit of a climax here in the middle of the chapter in verses 12 through 14. We get this, again, the singing is is so wonderful. It's the it's really, I think, a picture of a, of a celebration, a party. You know, we talked about the vineyards bearing fruit and getting to enjoy that. We get a, a sense of that here with the grain, the wine and the oil, all these flocks. I mean, this everyone, young women, Young men, the old, they're all rejoicing together. Even the priests, there's no, there's no shortage for anyone. The, it's just, a, again, a full picture of the restoration that the Lord's going to give to his people. Yeah. And Jerusalem, I think in the mind was always to be associated with feasting, right? Mm. Uh, because all of the, um, all of the pilgrimage festivals, all those festivals where people were to return to Jerusalem, uh, while celebrating other things as well, were all harvest related festivals. And so when you came back there, there was always new great stuff to eat and to drink. Um, and again, then it kind of just became, you know, all this overwhelming joy, um, and this is like God, you know, had always uh, desired. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, you, you get, yeah, this, you know, their life will be like a watered garden. I was going to give you just a little bit of, you know, humor here, because if if uh, you follow <laughs> Pastor Apple ever on uh, Facebook, uh, he's he's always posting his bounty, right? And up here in Minnesota, it really hurts us because, you know, we don't we don't have a lot coming from the gardens yet. But uh, he shows us what a I, I guess you must you you're either watering or the Lord's providing water because it seems like things are growing well. 
The Lord has provided quite a bit of water this year, I will say. There was <laughs> there was good. a while where we had quite a bit of water, almost too much. <laughs> almost too much water. But yeah, I mean, and and I will say pretty soon, Pastor Hoppy, your garden will look great and mine will be burned up. So <laughs> we get the chance to envy each other during our, our growing season, I'm sure. There we but, go. Yeah, I'm, the, the picture here of, of this just well-watered, lush garden, better than anything you or I could grow is, I mean, it, again, and I, I like the way you, you put that about Jerusalem being a place of feasting. I think that's that's quite evident, as you said, in the feast that the Lord gives them. And I was reminded of the the picture from Isaiah chapter 25, where the Lord says, you know, on this mountain, I'll set right. that feast. And, and Jeremiah has a similar picture here. Now, as the, as the text continues, we're going to pick up reading in verse 15. We saw this in yesterday's text as well. Sometimes there's these uh, very sharp shifts in the text from from law to gospel, gospel to law, and, and we're going to see a bit of that shift, and yet there still, be, still will be comfort. So we're picking up again in verse 15 of Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once more, they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this, I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. That's the end of our text for today. That was verses 15 through 26. Lots of different images here, Pastor Hoppy. The first part of this section begins with verse 15, and it does have a, a shift suddenly now to, we've gone from this feasting, this great joy, now to weeping. Uh, what is, what's happening in verse 15? What's, what's going on? Yeah, so we like you said, it is it is quite shocking that you know almost kind of in the midst of the party, uh, wailing uh, begins here, right? And uh, Rachel, you know, Rachel is uh, of course an interesting kind of figure in a, in a lot of ways uh, in you know the whole story of Jacob uh, and everything there. But one of the things we know about Rachel, right, is her two children are are Joseph 
and Benjamin. Uh, and then uh, as we go forward from there, right, when kind of the tribes get divided up, Joseph, uh, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are the ones who sort of get an allotment of, of land. And so even with Rachel, there's a little bit of northern kingdom and a little bit of southern kingdom because that tribe of Benjamin seems to kind of be, uh, you know, uh, to use the word it's going to come up, encircled, right, by uh by Judah. And so she's got a little bit in both. But I think first here, the cry, right, is it says is kind of about Ephraim. And so we can even say this is a cry about what happened with the Northern Kingdom uh, and Israel, although again, not unrelated to what is about to happen to the Southern Kingdom. And so uh, basically here, she sees her children, uh, whether we want to talk just about her two children, or I'm sure in general, right, uh, we can talk about the whole 12 tribes, and yet they are lost. They are taken away. They are destroyed. Uh, and so she is so heartbroken that no one can comfort her except, right, the Lord, who, who comes to her and says, ah, right, don't keep on weeping forever. Uh, you know, even says there's a reward for your work, right? In other words, everything that you uh, put into and invested in this is not in vain either because of the Lord's uh, hand. And so, uh, you know, like you said, from the merriment to the weeping, and now he starts lifting her back up. Uh, and by the end of the chapter, again, we're kind of back to just pure joy. Um, and so that's kind of what we what we see here um, in this section. Right. So almost like a, a recapitulation of, of the story that you're reminded of the great pain, the great torment and horror that the exile was from the perspective of imagine Rachel as the mother of these tribes watching her children just be taken away. So and, and then but you get you get the get the comfort again from the Lord, you know, keep your your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears that that not hope is not lost. There is restoration. And there is, I would say, resurrection. That's that's ultimately the hope that we're talking about here. I, as I was reading verse 16, where the Lord says, you know, keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears. I was reminded of the way that Jesus addresses the widow at Nain in Luke chapter seven. And, and he tells her, don't, don't weep when her son has died and, and she's left all alone. Jesus says, don't weep because he raises her son from the dead. And I think, you know, it's like a similar thing is going on here. He's, he's comforting Rachel. Don't weep your children. They, they will be restored. They will be raised from the dead, which is, I mean, ultimately what this whole account of the, the exile and return points us forward to the resurrection that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, uh, uh, at least we're on the three-year series here, and this week you'll get Jesus going into the little girl who he says is sleeping, right, and telling her to rise. And even there you get kind of this picture, yeah, that he has to part the 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 mourners, right, <laughs> to, to get there. Um, and that it, it's another, yeah, this kind of recurrent theme of, of he's doing that. And, and the last thing I just wanted to add with this is, right, that while Rachel is weeping for her children. Isn't it amazing again that God uh, in verse 30 or in verse 20, rather, you know, he, he says, hey, Ephraim's my son, right? Like, uh, you know, so don't just weep because I'm going to still do something about this because it's not just your children, Rachel. It's mm -hmm. my child as well. 
Yeah, that's that's a fantastic verse right there, verse twenty. Let's before I want to come back to that verse, I think, but before we get too far afield from these verses, in verses fifteen, particularly fifteen, these get picked up in the New Testament with a fulfillment in the life of of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does how does Matthew pick up these verses and say they apply to Jesus? Yeah, so these verses are quoted, and you know Matthew, uh, as he often does, right, kind of will say, right, and this happened to fulfill the prophecy uh, that was spoken, and that's what he does, and he says this uh, thing about the voice being heard in Rama, this lamentation and bitter weeping. He says it is fulfilled when we have uh, Herod uh, slaughtering the innocents in Bethlehem, um, and uh, there it is said again. You know, here is this great mourning uh, among the people of God and particularly uh, mothers mourning over their lost children. And so, uh, again, I think as we look at this, uh, you know, as you read it in Jeremiah, uh, the people that are are hearing it there would certainly have been able to show you uh, or tell you what that was about in their day as well. And yet, as God often does, there's still more to come to get the full fulfillment of the prophecy. Uh, we have to go all the way to Jesus always. And so therefore, right, as Jesus is uh, taken down into Egypt and then out of Egypt in order to escape this slaughter, we have this same thing where those that are mourning the loss of the innocents are told, don't keep weeping forever, right? Because God is at work. He is getting ready to die and to rise in order that you might rise as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and that's what the beauty of looking at all of Jeremiah 31 is. Matthew just quotes verse 15 in his text in Matthew chapter 2, but but when the New Testament writers do that, so often they they want us to look at the full context. And, and by just quoting verse 15, Matthew invites us to remember the rest of Jeremiah 31 and the hope that the Lord would have spoke, he spoke to the people who had gone into exile. And that same hope is there for those whose children died as martyrs, you know, for Christ. And, and that I think is, I mean, it's, it's so important to, to see the hope then that the Lord speaks. And again, as, as Jesus does throughout his ministry, when, when he encounters someone who has died, he speaks words of hope to them because the resurrection is coming. So that, that full context is, is so important. Pastor Hoppy, as the, as we're in this text in verses 18 and 19, we get a little bit of the actual words of, of Ephraim grieving, almost a, a confession of sins. And, and there's a few, uh, well, there's one phrase in particular that may strike us as odd. In verse 19, Ephraim says, after I was instructed, I struck my thigh as a part of this confession. What what does that mean? Yeah, and it seems that this is just kind of an idiom of you're sort of all of a sudden terrified and horrified at what you've done, right? It, it's uh, it's contrition, right? Acted out um, and kind of just, again, a striking of the thigh. I don't know. I, I wasn't able to find a lot about the particular, you know, if there's any particular way in which that was done or anything, but this was just sort of a way. And again, we get these, you know, kind of people talk about, you know, body language, right? Or nonverbal communication where someone does something without saying a word, you know what they're trying to convey. And for these people, this slapping of the thigh was a way to say, what have I done, right? Uh, I have, I have sinned grievously. And then in verse 20, we get those comforting words from the Lord again. And I love the connection you made from the way that Rachel weeps for her children and the Lord comes and says, but remember Ephraim is my son. And I, I particularly, I mean, the answer, you know, is Ephraim my dear son? Yes, 
is he my darling child? Yes. And then this, this verse or this section right in the middle of that verse, as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. <laughs> I think it's a, a wonderful verse just to keep in mind for the fullness of Jeremiah. And anytime the Lord is preaching his law in its full sternness, that he's doing this because he remembers his child and because he loves his child. I mean, that that verse right there or that section right there in the middle of verse 20, I think is a fantastic verse for us to keep in mind. Anytime we encounter the preaching of the law, that the Lord's doing it because he loves us. Yeah. And it, it's particularly needful in our day to understand that, right? Because we are often told that any sort of rebuke or anything cannot by its nature be loving. And, you know, we'll, we'll be told again, right? Well, God loves everyone. And I always say right away, absolutely. What do you mean by that? Right. Like, yeah. what what do you mean? Because if you just mean that, no, he would always just pat people on the back and always, you know, affirm whatever they want to do. No, that's not the kind of love we see in the Lord. We see a love that does call back, that does uh, speak against even. Uh, and like you said, the the parallel there of why am I even talking to him? Because I remember him, because he's mine, right? If if I didn't care, I just let him go away, right? Yeah. Uh, but I do care, and so that's that's kind of the the beautiful picture here. And so we can say, even in the exile, this is an act of chastisement, yes, but really an act of uh, discipline. Right to to try to draw people back to him. Um, it's not just vengeance against ju- or you know vi- just vengeance uh, against an enemy, uh, but it is still um, him trying to win back his son. And if I can say one final thing, this is why even in the church, if we are exercising church discipline and we're talking to someone who is doing something that is not worthy of the Lord. And even if that process would go all the way through to excommunicating, sometimes, again, people think, well, that's just sort of a vengeful act at the end. But even that, no, we're saying you are, right? You were or you are one of ours and we want you back. And we've got to tell you clearly that you're not with us right now and you're not with Christ. Yeah, I mean, I think you're spot on here is when it's when the communication stops. It's when the speech stops. That's when the love has has been you know it's it's gone away. Yeah, that's. I mean, I, I think I've I've said this before uh, in in response to this type of conversation that the the really frightening thing from the prophets would be in the book of Amos where the Lord talks about a famine of His word. Yeah, that's that's the frightening thing is when the Lord stops speaking. It's it's so much better for Him to be speaking even in the harshest law because He's still speaking to you, and and that means He remembers you. And and as the prophet continues, that means he's he's trying to show mercy to you. He's doing yeah. to use those theological terms. You know, he's doing his alien work of of speaking his law so that he can do his proper work of showing mercy. And so, I mean, what what you said about how this applies to church discipline today is, is spot on. That that anytime we have to speak that word, the law, we're speaking because we love. Uh, that it's when if if we don't speak. That would be to be loveless. We we have to do this as the church still, because this is what our Lord has done for us. This is how he shows his love to us is by speaking the fullness of his word for the sake of showing mercy. And so we as the church show love to the world by doing the same thing. Speak the fullness of God's word for the sake of them hearing the mercy of God in Christ.
Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm totally with you again. I think that's that's exactly right where we're uh, where we are in this text. Yep. So, Pastor Hoppy, then verse verse twenty one. This this matter of the the road through the wilderness. I'm almost. I mean, I'm trying to picture this one in my mind, and I'm thinking. I don't know if this is impious to say, but Hansel and Gretel comes to mind. Like okay. the Lord tells them, you know, when you go to exile, <laughs> right. make sure you mark the path so that you can find your way back because you yeah. are coming back. I don't know. Right. That may not be the best image, but that's kind of the, yeah. the image that I've got there in verse twenty one. Le- leave but, some breadcrumbs, huh? Something like that. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, 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 again, that may not be the best, but the idea is that you know watch the road that you walk because you will come back that's that's the promise verse 22 has a very strange saying that we should spend some time talking about the end of verse 22 says the lord's going to create this new thing and the new thing is that a woman encircles a man that's the way the esv translates it how do we understand that yeah, and it, it is, you know, as you read different people, and even again, uh, I, I read one thing today that said that Luther actually between uh, his two translations, or his, his first translation and then later translations is maybe a better way to say it, actually changed the word he used on here because he was trying to struggle with what the text was saying and then wanted to, of course, translate it into the German language in a way that would, you know, make it uh, more clear. And so, um, but again, you read all sorts of different scholars and they'll come up with, with slightly different things. The first thing is that he says it's a, it's a new thing, right? And so it does give us a strike that the sense that it's supposed to be something that's not the way things normally are, the not the way things would be maybe even kind of naturally using that term in kind of the broadest sense, that it's going to be something different uh, and new. Well, okay, then what is that? Um, I guess I tend to think, I'll give you sort of, you know, after looking at all the options, I tend to think the thing that makes the most sense is that ultimately what this is saying is that Israel, here is the woman, right? And she is going to encircle the man who is Yahweh, who is God, right? And why is that new or why is that different? Well, because as we have heard, the whole point has been God chasing after Israel, right? And yet Jeremiah says in his own prophecy, right, that he's going to give his people a new heart. And with that new heart, the people are going to love the Lord their God. I tend to think that that's what this is about, is that the weird thing that's going to happen is though Israel is weak, though she has been sinful and rebellious, again, because of God's activity, no doubt, but she is even going to love God with her whole heart. Um, I, I think that's the key thing here. Um, should I, you want to comment to that or should I go on to a couple of the other possibilities? I'd, I'd like to hear the other possibilities just because they, they strike me as, uh, I don't know that I would have thought of that. And just so that, that we can at least put them out there for consideration since it is a, I, I, I don't disagree with what you said. I think that that's a, it seems like it certainly fits the context, but just to hear what some others have, have said, I think is enlightening. Sure. Yeah. The other one uh, would be that the talk here is sort of that the women uh, or or even just Israel here pictured sort of as a woman and pictured here, uh, you know, as the scriptures would say is the weaker vessel, right? Uh, Without getting into a whole discussion of that, just the fact that again, ultimately, especially in this point in history, and I think, you know, we could still say today, you know, if you're going to war, you want the strong men, right? Especially if we're doing hand-to-hand combat, 
you want the strong men. And there's sort of a picture here that Israel is going to defeat the Babylonians. Uh, and Israel here then would be pictured as it has been as a virgin daughter, right? A weak a uh, virgin daughter who defeats this strong man and encircles here would be almost like a military like encircles engulfs uh, surrounds and then destroys so that's that's one the the last one is the most i mean it's tempting i want to go there but i'm not sure quite if it's if it's there or not which is and this is especially in the early church fathers they somewhat universally say that this is a picture of the virgin mary bearing the christ child that literally her flesh is going to encircle his flesh, right? When he is in the womb. Um, you know, again, uh, people much better, uh, you know, studied say that there's a lot of reasons why that is hard to kind of pull off from this text. But I got to admit, I'm, I'm, I, I love the beauty of it at least. I don't know what you yeah. think. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that's when, when you, when you sent that to me ahead of time, I was, oh, wow, I don't know that I would have thought that right away. But as you said, my reaction was, was very similar. I like that. I, I, I think that would be, I mean, that, that certainly is a new thing. And there's a lot of, um, obviously the new Testament or excuse me, the old Testament is constantly pointing toward that new thing that the Lord does in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. And so I, I like it. I, I'm just not sure if, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not sure where I would see that in the New Testament as a, an indicator that I should read Jeremiah 31 that way. But I'm so yeah, I I, I certainly agree that that Mary giving birth to Jesus, even just you know this conception of Jesus, is this new thing that the Lord does. Was that precisely what Jeremiah was talking about in 31:22? That I'm not sure. And so yeah, but I, I appreciate you putting it out there because I do find it I find it intriguing and interesting to think about. Pastor Robbie, we got just about two minutes here on the morning and a few verses left. Final thoughts on, on the verses that we have before us. Maybe if you could comment briefly on 26, because that's a, a strange ending, I think. And then summarize the text, help us to, to see Christ here. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, let's take that last verse. You know, uh, I'll really doubt my date myself here, but I, I believe it was Dallas. Right? Am I right about this? Do you know what I'm talking about, Pastor Apple? Where there there was either a whole season or whether it was the whole show, and all of a sudden at the end, someone wakes up, and and apparently the whole show had been uh, a dream. Do you remember this at all, or am I? Uh, da- the the TV series Dallas is before my time. All right. Well, look it up, Google it, would you? <laughs> so I don't feel so old. But uh, but I mean, this is kind of the weird thing we get is all of a sudden it kind of comes out of nowhere, right? Because again, we have other places where we're told this is a dream, right? Or this person experiences in the dream, but we don't get any of that up front. We're just kind of going along going, okay, you know, these things are being revealed and all of this. And then all of a sudden he wakes up and you go, okay, well, in kind of in retrospect, you go, okay, God gave this through a dream. And again, that's certainly not inconsistent with how uh, words of revelation are shared in the scriptures, but it does just sort of come out of nowhere, which is why I think it kind of shocks us. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I just like this picture that this, you know, think of all Jeremiah is going through, right? He's he's not only bringing this harsh word, but he's also literally going into exile, right, with the people. 
And yet God gives him this dream to cheer him, right, with true hope. Uh, the, this, this weeping <laughs> lamentations prophet, uh, through this dream is brought, uh, to, to hope and to joy again. And that's, I think that's beautiful. Um, and, and why, why ultimately is this such a, you know, a cheerful thing to him? Well, because he understands, uh, that God has promised now to make Jerusalem again, a habitation of righteousness after the exile, right? After the temple, uh, has been, uh, you know, uh, taken down. I mean, all the different, you know, incarnations of the temple and all of this that that's happening. And with the exile here again, um, and now he's going to return them to Jerusalem. And yet ultimately, while there will be a temple there in Jesus's day, it's ultimately not about the habitation of God in the temple. It's about the habitation of God in the person of Christ, right? And, and there is righteousness. There is this righteousness, you know, uh, given apart from the law that all people can have. And in that righteousness is where we find the truest joy. Uh, because as you pointed out, right, ultimately that righteousness is the very righteousness that raises us up, right, from the death of sin unto to life. And that's saying spiritually, and then literally bodily raises us up from death uh, unto life that we get to share with our Lord uh, forever in the new Jerusalem, right? This this heavenly habitation that we will uh, live in forever. Pastor Philip Hoppe is pastor at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 1 to 26. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. So glad to do it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature in the app to send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.